Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. Uh, I'm Marcus Grodi, and uh, joined by my co-host, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you today. Uh, thank you all for joining us on our continued study of Irenaeus's book, Against Heresies. For a moment, we're going to jump from the 21st century back to the 2nd century. And even as Monsignor and I were talking a little bit, we're going to get into some anthropology later, and there's a sense in which if we really want to hear what Irenaeus is trying to say, we have to almost erase everything that's happened from the second century to today so that we be careful that we're not reading back into Irenaeus's mind what we've come to assume about humanity, mm -hmm. about the person, right, Monsignor? I mean, and that's hard because we've... And I, and I even think as we look at Irenaeus today, uh, I kind of wondered as I was reading to what extent he himself was shaped by the Greek philosophy of his time period. And I know there are, are scholars that debate about to what extent Irenaeus was shaped by Plato particularly. But, um, and I, Monsignor, you've pointed out um, your distinctions on that, which I look forward to you sharing with us today. What we would like to get through today, everyone, is we're going to, here's the goal, we're going to, we're in book five, and we're going to complete chapters five through eight, pages 458 through 465, maybe it's 467, I think. Oh, yeah, we're going to force top of four sixty seven. Yeah, top of four sixty seven, right? And <clears throat> what I'm going to do is I've has been our practice over the last couple of weeks is I'm going to give an overview from just a kind of an outline, Monsignor. Though you jump in every single time um, that you want to. You know, Marcus, one of the things I was thinking about here was one of the wonderful things about it being a Catholic is that we can we can legitimately have games of chance down in the fellowship hall. <laughs> so we could, the Coming Home Network could conceivably sell tickets because I'll bet you we're not getting to the end of, cha of Chapter 8 today. <laughs> I'm okay. Well, I'm planning on us getting to the end of Chapter 8. Um, but if we, if we have to extend it, you know, yeah. what I usually look for, we're hoping to, to keep the thing a little short. But we always wax so eloquently that we go on to over an hour. Uh, um, and... Uh, in fact, Monsignor, this cracks me up. I got to say this before we okay. before we get um, beyond. It just cracked me up. Those of you who are got the book in front of you, I want you to turn to the bottom of page four sixty five. This is you got to have the Keeble translation on the bottom of four sixty five. Over to the right, the very bottom. You look at his, he puts a little summary note to the oh. side. And what this shows you is that he's British because it cracked me up. It sounded like P.G. Woodhouse for a second and Bertie <laughs> Wooster because he says, he says, um, I got, he says, parting the hoof and chewing the cud. What? <laughs> That's a Bertie Wooster. You know, what, what, what? Cracked me up when I read that. So anyway, uh, I had Marcus. I just, I'm sorry. To, I just remember there was a wonderful Anglican priest in Oxford. Um, <laughs> when he retired, he was a little bit off of his uh, game, <laughs> and he used to be found out in the pastures outside of Oxford singing Evensong with the cows. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's my patron saint. <laughs> the uh, I, in fact, as we begin the program, everybody, and I know you, all of you watching, I understand perfectly. It doesn't hurt my feelings whatsoever that you you look forward to the expertise of Monsignor and you just put up with my falderall here because I'm certainly not. But I, yeah, as I not. as I approach this thing this week, I even feel less. Uh, on the one hand, less prepared because our life changed this last Sunday because I became a dairyman again. My Jersey cow gave birth, and so I have a, a beautiful, absolutely precious young calf. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. And Richard calls him paint because he looks just like a, a, a pulled Hereford, all brown with splotty whites on his head. He looks like he got his head in, into some wet paint on a wall. Um a little, he's going to be a steer, and uh, uh, which means that some would say he's going to become Hamburg, but we won't go there. But that means I've got a Jersey mother that I'm now sharing with the calf and milking every day. So my life has become routine all of a sudden. But the reason I mentioned, I thought it was funny that just as we, as my life changed and I am back to being uh, a, a dairyman. We're going to end in chapter 8, where he's using the Old Testament images of the cloven hoof and chewing the cud. So it was like, whoa, you know, we we landed right in the section that uh, touched my life. Now, I'm kind of a Johnny OneNote when it, the lens is through which I look at Irenaeus. And maybe that comes out of my evangelical background, but to me, what I see... Irenaeus doing in this section, we have to just remember that when he began book five, on the bottom of page 448, when he was going through the reasons he was doing this book, one of them was, the very bottom, to draw back them from error and convert them to the church of God. And so, Monsignor, isn't it true that what we're dealing with here, you know, some have said that Irenaeus is the earliest of the systematic theologians of the church, but to a certain extent, he's not all that systematic. But we're really approaching him talking about the last things. Yeah, and that will be, that's really the thing that really jumps out about book five is his um, eschatology. So that's what we're dealing with, folks. So the bottom line is, he's talking about salvation and who can be saved. And I see this, the overall of this section, which again, is not, it's not complete. We're, we're starting a long section, which we can't cover in just this one hour. He's dealing with the fact that there aren't five, six, seven, eight, nine ways to heaven. There's two ways. And so now we're touched on this classic way of understanding all of salvation history as there's two ways. You're either with God or you ain't. How do you understand being with God or not with God? And we make the choice. He doesn't choose that for us. He may enable us through grace for dying for us, doing all kinds of things for us, but in the end, we choose. And, it, and he's going to talk about that in this section. There are two peop, two groups of people, and that's what he's talking about. And he begins in chap, in book five, chapter five on page 458. And to me, this is the overall image that he's talking about. There's two ways, folks, and he's using, it, it's like trying to convert the Gnostics bring them within their categories. He's using their terminology, their categories, to help turn it around on them, to help them realize that there's going to be one or two places for us to end up, and that's it. There's one or two places. There's heaven or there's hell. And how are you going to get there? And they had different ideas. So if you begin at the beginning, the first thing is I want to draw you back just for a second to the quote on page 458 
to the at the end of the last chapter, which seems to be, to me, the beginning point when he says, the middle of page 458, he says, but that bodies may receive life, all may see, for they live so long as God willeth them to live, and after that, man men cannot say that they have no power to receive life. That We talked about this last week, that there's all kinds of evidence that, excuse us, we've got bodies and we're alive. So bodies can have life. And if bodies can have life, they can be resurrected. And he emphasizes that bodies will last as long as God wills. You can live as long as Methuselah. He'll call you home tonight. He's evangelist here, in my mind. He's trying to get them. Go ahead, Father. Yeah, I remember last week he made that um, point to the Gnostics. It's more difficult to create a human life than it is to extend a human life. So this isn't this isn't uh, exhausting the power of God at all. Yeah. So now we get into a very interesting section here, which Monsignor, I don't know if you want to get to it now or later. But the section of, of uh, on page 458 up to the fourth top of 459 in section one mm-hmm. is to me is really interesting. It's a we got to remember, folks, we, when we're studying Irenaeus, we're not saying he's infallible. This is not inspired scripture. This is Irenaeus. And what he says is he's he's dealing with an idea that he says. He learned from the elders, and he calls them the pupils of the apostles. And he's, he's saying that the elders, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Monsignor, the word elder is the English translation of the Greek word presbyter. That's correct. Which later evolved into priest, but he's not really talking about that. He's talking about bishops. Episcopoi, bishops, presbyters, the words are used interchangeably. The students of the apostles. Right. So we have a distinction here, folks. This is very important. That's why, remember, we got to take everything from the third century on and set it aside for a bit. We've got Christ passing on his teachings to the apostles, promising them the Holy Spirit that they'll remember everything he taught them so that it becomes an apostolic deposit of faith, which is then passed on. And the church, church's authority is in that apostolic deposit of faith that the church is guarding and preserving, and it's being passed from the bishops to their pupils. And so we have a distinction between the apostles and those that follow, the bishops, the, the presbyters, who their authority comes, and we're not there yet where their authority comes in their ordination. That comes later. Their authority yeah. is because they receive the, the apostolic deposit of faith. Yes. Okay. And he makes a distinction between the actual teaching that's in the apostolic deposit of faith and maybe some things that the bishops are teaching. There might be a little difference. And in this case, he's making a distinction about the things he learned from the elders, the bishops, the pupils. Now, it's not he's not trying to say, yeah, you know, what they said isn't inspired. It's not so much that, but what he's to me, what he's saying is on a Sunday by Sunday basis, when the presbyters, the bishops are preaching in liturgy, what are they using? They're using the Old Testament as the main foundation for their teaching, as well as the the writings of the apostles, the memoirs, as Justin Martyr would say. And then they they preach on it. Justin Martyr says that, the, pres, the president of the local gathering. And <clears throat> it, it, to me, what's behind this is on a given Sunday, the bishops are preaching on the story of Enoch, or they're preaching on the story of Eliza. And the question is, wait a second, folks, what does that have to do with our own salvation, our own resurrection? How do we understand the fact that all of a sudden Enoch 
wasn't. The Old Testament says all of a sudden he was not. Mm-hmm. Boom. Elijah, chariots come, take him away. How do we understand that? What about their bodies, their souls, their spirits? How do we understand that? And that's Monsignor, where we kind of get into the anthropology, which you're going to get into in detail later. But he seems to make a distinction between two words, translation and assumption. That Enoch was translated in body, and he no longer was visible, whereas Elias, Elijah, was assumed and taken up. And again, this is what it seems like it's saying here, and we'll get back to it, and, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Again, this isn't def- he's not defining what the church means on these things, but he's saying, this is what I heard from the bishops, <clears throat> that there seems to be a distinction, and that is, in this section, that a spiritual righteous per- people, there are spiritual righteous people who are translated to paradise, which is where Adam was before he was pulled away. And they remain there in paradise, in body, until the consummation. That's what he says, which he says makes the beginning of our incorruption. On the other hand, there are those people who are assumed, taken up in body, and they aren't just waiting until consummation, they've been assumed all the way into the presence of the Trinity. And so there seems to be a distinction between this use of the word translation and assumption. Now, folks, this is not in the catechism today. This happened to be what he is saying the elders were teaching. Does that kind of summarize this section, Monsignor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Marcus, yeah, I just want to quote a little bit on the bottom of page 458, um, yes. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines up about, um, about Elias. He was taken up as he was in the subsistence or the substance wherein he was formed, prophesying the assumption of them that are spiritual. And we'll get into that in a bit. Um, uh, it is because Elijah had a an abundant full share of the Holy Spirit. He is treated differently than Enoch by Irenaeus here. Yeah. And again, and, and yeah. I was yeah, gonna go say yeah. I was gonna say it seems to me that the nuance here is that it isn't so much that Irenaeus treats them different. He is saying the elders, the pupils of the apostles, treat well, them different. About- Marcus, then let's just, I have a question about that. Um, Top of page 459 then. Yeah. um, Wherefore also the elders, the pupils of the apostles say that those who are translated are translated thither inasmuch as for righteous men and for such as have the spirit within them is paradise prepared. Wherein also Paul the apostle having been introduced heard words unspeakable to us at this present. Um, and there are those who are translated, remain onto the consummation, making a beginning of our incorruption. Right. So is that's what you mean by that? That's, that that's what I um, mean. In a, in a, yeah. it's, it's not, to me, it's not Irenaeus coming up with his own interpretation, but he is pointing to the to Polycarp, to those that were pupils of the apostles themselves, and this is how they've kind of explained it, to me, is what he is saying. And the reason this is fascinating to me is, you know, I come from a background Bible only. I didn't learn anything about the early church fathers, you know, the distinctions, you're just, and we get to the early fathers, and he's making some distinctions. We have Christ and what he taught, given to the apostles, they guard it, they're guided by the Holy Spirit, they pass it on to their pupils, and then their pupils have to preach about it to the people. But they have, but they're, the, the, one of the distinctions is to always be faithful to that which they received. And so here Irene is saying, well, given these difficult things, how do you, how do you relate it to 
resurrection of the body? How do you relate it to our life in Christ? Where we're going to go? Well, here's how the, the bishops take the stories of Enoch and Elijah and connect it to salvation. And I, he seems to imply that there are spiritual righteous people beyond Enoch that are translated to paradise. And I don't know who he's referring to, but he seems yeah. to imply that this is, uh, you know, maybe he means the martyrs, you know, who died but were, and of course, you know. I think, I think he definitely, um, we've come across some passages before where the martyrs are put in that category. So I think okay. so, yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting a bit of field here. I'll say another thing that I found interesting is that if you notice Keeble translate at the bottom of page 458, he makes this statement, uh, for in Adam the hands of God were accustomed to adjust and keep together and to carry and to bear that which themselves had formed, to set it where themselves will. His use of that awkward for English formation, but he insists on using themselves. And that, I think, is um, a reference to the Blessed Trinity. Because the Trinity are integral. I mean, they're involved. All the persons of the Trinity are involved in our existence. Yeah. And so he takes what is in Scripture, Paul will say that, and pulls it into, and I'm assuming Keeble I don't have the Greek here or the Latin to see that he's using the word, the Irenaeus, to make sure people understand it's the Trinity. He wouldn't use the word Trinity, but he says themselves. Yeah, that'd be. I'd, I, I'll try to go and look that up when I can. I mean, that's, so, a, yeah. that's a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pregnant word. Yeah. Themselves. Has a lot in that word. And we're not using the word Trinity yet, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit, themselves. I mean, that's like saying three in one, themselves. You know, that's really cool. Anyway. Um, yeah. Oh, that's right. And, and again, you know, um, Gaudium et Spes, um, section 22, I think it is, refer, refers to the Trinity um, as the pattern of uh, an, a human person. We, we all have a Trinitarian image to them. Mm-hmm. And for, for Irenaeus, basically, the, the father, of course, is the, he's involved because he created us, but he's also, we're, we're going to be his children. I mean, if everything goes well, when we're perfected, we'll be his children. Um, we're created in the image of his son, and to, to get to be a perfect image, we need the Holy Spirit. So um, yeah. that's the idea that the Trinity is involved in the, um, in, in the salvation of every human person. All right. Although, am I correct? He doesn't yet use the philosophical term person. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. He yeah. uses the word man. Right. Which is why we're calling this episode the whole man. Whereas the Gnostics are seeing man broken up into parts, the flesh, the body, the soul, the spirit, different understandings of salvation being the rescue of the soul or the rescue of the spirit out of this carnal body. That's And what he's going to argue, no, the whole man consists of all three. Yeah. Now, you're betting that we're not going to finish through chapter 8. I'm going to get us through there right now in our summary to make sure, because we want to, <laughs> we, you know, in section 2, page 459, Irenaeus assumes, this is very significant, he assumes that his audience agrees with him and accepts the historical veracity of Enoch, Elijah, Adam, Jonas, and the three in the furnace, but not just the three in the furnace, but that there was a fourth in the sermon in the furnace, and that fourth was Jesus. Irenaeus is not doubting the historical veracity 
of these Old Testament stories. To me, that's very important. Yeah. And we live today with the other assumption, is that the majority, too many today, even in pulpits I heard recently, just as a matter of fact, doubt their historical veracity. Irenaeus, the early church didn't. Nor do the apostles, nor do the elders who were their pupils, which therefore you would include Irenaeus. And the arguments are built on that. And so if you undercut the assumptions, you undercut the argument, which is why we're in the mess we're in. As I think it was either Laurel or Hardy used to say. Um, Hmm. Therefore, God is not subject to creation, but creation is subject to God. And he makes that point to emphasize the fact, again, as you mentioned earlier, that it's easier to create. It's easier. It's not as difficult to recreate man as it was to create him in the first place, right? And, the, you know, God. Yeah. And, of course, his argument is against the Gnostics who, um, because their God had nothing to do with the creation of man. Yeah, they, they get caught up in this. Yeah. God has the power and authority over what he created. He has it over matter. Therefore, if God can do the impossible— Again, this is the argument. You take those those things in the scriptures as truthful, and therefore they form the foundation for God can do the impossible. See? These three guys are in a furnace in the midst of the fire, and they survived. If God can do that, he can raise the dead. That's Irenaeus' argument. If God can, can save Jonas from the belly of a whale— if he can do that, then he can raise the dead. And so the point is, if you, if, you un, if you undercut that, that's why we have Boltmann and others that say, well, the resurrection was just nothing but a myth. And that still influences so many of our seminaries and influences, therefore, the people that come out of those seminaries. That's why you'll hear it on Sundays. But he oh, makes it, he, he, I'm sorry, but, I just I was just shivering with horror. Well, you know what I'm talking about. And, <laughs> I uh, do. No. The, yeah, the fir- very first course I took in college on all this stuff was studying Boltmann and Perrin and Key and all these guys. And so I've just had a, a reconversion of faith at age 21. I take some courses and they're undercutting everything. And I had to get in battles with my professors and say, why, why aren't you guys out selling shoes? Why are you doing this? You know, why are you trying to destroy everybody's faith? Because he makes a point. That a person's unbelief does not affect this. I love it when he says that. It's real. It's real. Whether you believe it or not. And you'll find out. He's telling them. You don't believe any of this stuff. Okay. But you'll find out the reality of it. Because you will be resurrected, body, soul, and spirit. You will be. And you'll spend eternity in your body. A spiritual body. It's either going to be in heaven or hell. There's no third or fourth or fifth option. That's kind of the underlying. In section, in chapter six, section one, page 460, begins with the quote, but God will be glorified in his own creature, molding it in conformity and correspondence with his own son. For by the hands of the father, i.e. the son and the spirit, Man is made after the image of God. Man, not a part of man. Now he's dealing with the whole man. And I love it when he says, what are the hands of God, Monsignor, that creates? The hands of God are the Son and the Spirit. He's using an imagery of the Trinity. Uh The Father and his hands are the Son and the Spirit. It's certainly not a, it's not a perfect analogy of the Trinity. You know, uh, we, we know that um, uh, 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 St. Patrick used some imperfect images of the Trinity when he was converting those heathens up there in Ireland, but he got the point across. Well, here Irenaeus is using an image of the Trinity that the Father's and hands were the Son and the Spirit. It's kind of subtle in there, but it's there. 
And in this section, we see the two ways expressed as whether a person has a spirit or not. And you're going to come back to that, right, Monsignor? Yeah, we'll come back. We'll come back to that. I also found, when I was reading this, I found it interesting that Irenaeus uses the term form in seemingly a philosophical sense. And I kind of wondered whether he's had some influences of Platonism. And and the more I've you I've thought about that question, Marcus. Um, obviously, he was breathing the air that was all around him, the philosophical air. But this, you could not have chosen something more anti-Platonic than where he is right now. Okay, talking about the resurrection of the body, that, that is that doesn't fit in Plotinus's system at all. I mean, Plato's system. Plato's system. In other words, it seems, and I'm I'm not trained in philosophy at all, uh, very little, but the idea from what you've said and others, that Plato's idea of the form is it's some some heavenly image or some other image of a a thing. Yeah, because, I mean, we were perfect way up there, and then we fell and occupied this physical world with our physical bodies, and the goal is to get back to where we started from. That was the Platonic idea of salvation. And here come these Christians that are talking about the resurrection of the body. Um, That that is totally anti-Platonic. So those of you that have philosophical background, when you read that section, which is section one on the bottom of 460 and then 461, the question is, is Irenaeus making a subtle stab at Platonists by saying, we're not talking about a form that's up there someplace. He's saying the form is the body. He's, he's saying it's equivalent. This is the form. This is the form. And it's not a form that traps a soul in a person, a soul in a spirit. He doesn't use person that need to be escaped. That's no... A, a whole man is all because That's exactly right. Yeah. And that, you know, and we don't want to dump on poor old Plato here. Um, <laughs> Plato's not the issue. It's the Gnostics who are the issue. They're the ones that have taken this and, and run with it. The perfect or spiritual man are those who have received the spirit and exhibit the spiritual gifts. And he talks about the charismatic gifts here, the spirit, Spiritual or whole man consists of body, soul, and spirit. Separately, they are parts of the whole man. The body is the carnal substance of the flesh, the form of man. The soul is the incorporeal part. And the spirit separately is either the spirit of man or the spirit of God. Now, we're going to come back to this, Monsignor, but I'll tell you, audience, right now, I found this a bit confusing here. It is confusing. I found it confusing. Yeah. I know how do yeah. I describe the soul and spirit and spirit? You know, it was a bit confusing here, and, and uh, maybe just because I'm I'm getting old. But anyway, a person becomes an animal man when he denies the spirit, and the soul is wanting of the spirit. Now you see, we've got the two ways here. You're either going to be a perfect spiritual man and spend life with God, or by denying the spirit. Essentially, you become a carnal person. Maybe just to add a quick little note here, when you mentioned animal man, um, we think, um, what we think of when we think of an animal <laughs> um, is not what, he's not what he means here. Animal is the, is the word uh, for soul. Animal is the word for soul. Now that is, I didn't catch that. Well, that's uh, what it's all about here. In Greek, animal is the word for soul. Well, I mean, I'm not questioning you on that, but why yeah. wouldn't Keeble make, why don't they, you just translate the word soul? Of course, then we hear soul man, and now we're thinking of the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's I not was, what he's talking about. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I, I, um, how should you put it? The soul, the suke, or the animus, is that which moves the flesh, okay. that animates the flesh, right? 
And um, we'll get into that in a bit again. But um, but that's what he means here when he uses the word animal man, that it's it's basically one that is lacking in the spirit, but has all the the willful and rational elements, pretty limited rational elements. um, But that's what the soul does. All right. Are you yeah, okay? I'm still, you know, uh, <laughs> I struggle with that, you know. You know yeah. I work every you know, day with my cows, and yeah. I'm amazing the intellect that I see in my, in my, in my cows. I mean, just I could tell you a story right now. Last Sunday, which just completely blew me away, and it it tells me there's more going on there than we give credit for, but it isn't quite the distinction, you know that. There's something missing there too, and that missing part is what we would call the spirit. That's correct. That's correct. But they have what we would call soul. Well, they'd have a very basic soul. Yeah. Yeah. You see, there's a yeah. distinction there. So, what is yeah. that, dis- that very fine line distinction? At least, again, I'm not trained to philosophy. That fine line distinction that sets my beautiful Jersey wonderful heifer apart from us is that distinction that he's talking about here. And if you don't have the spirit, if you deny the spirit, you turn your heart from the spirit, you run away from the spirit, you're losing a part that uh, of being a whole person, right? A whole man, to use his term. A person becomes, okay, Paul calleth those perfect who present unto the Lord all three without blame. He says this on bottom, I think, 461. Perfect then are they who both have had the Spirit of God remaining in them and have kept their souls and bodies without reproach, keeping God's faith, in other words, their faith towards God, and guarding also that righteousness which hath respect on their neighbor. Now, but this reminds me of is early on, Irenaeus talked about the passing on of truth from the beginning of Adam all the way to the end of salvation history. And he talks about in the very earliest time with Adam and and the earliest that planted within their conscience was a natural law. That was the law, a natural understanding of God, of the two ways and that was what guided Abraham. That was the faith that Enoch had, that, that Abraham had, before the law was written down by Moses. And that law is simplified and repeated by our Lord Jesus when he says that the core of everything, the bottom, the foundation of the law is this, that which was in the conscience of Abraham, and that is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he is saying here. Mm-hmm. He's saying at the core of that, that the spirit in man, keeping all three blameless, that's righteousness, body, soul, and spirit, in that keeping your faith towards God and guarding that righteousness towards your neighbor, love of God, love of neighbor. In section two, he goes on, God, Paul calls the body the form the temple of God and the Holy Spirit. So again, he's getting into this idea of the form. He's equating the form, the body, the flesh. Therefore, if the body, if our fleshly body is the temple of God, he says it's blasphemous to say that God cannot raise up our body. Paul says it's the temple of God. Remember? 1 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. So, Again, Irenaeus is, is yelling at the Gnostics that you're, you're, you're being hypocritical here. You're, 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 you're not recognizing the implications of it is when Paul says that our bodies. And that's why we have to present our bodies, as he says in what is that, Romans 12.1, as living sacrifices. Present our bodies as living sacrifices, uh, not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. 
Um, if you go into, we're going to keep moving, Monsignor. I'm going to win that bet. And uh, chapter I don't seven. Think so. <laughs> chapter seven. <laughs> chapter seven on page 462, section one. He talks about Christ himself rising in the substance of his flesh, guys. You guys don't want to say the flesh. Well, we know it happened in Christ. He showed us his hands. And then he goes on to talk more about this anthropology. You can get to souls are incorporeal. Bodies are the molded form of the flesh. Bodies die, not souls. Bodies dissolve, not souls or spirit. Souls are the breath of life. Spirits are uncompounded, simple, cannot be dissolved, the life of those who receive it. And again, this is where Monsignor, I was getting a little confused here between the, how do I distinction between a soul and a spirit? It sounds like he's kind of not very uh, systematic here. But he gets into this, you talked about the animated body. Animated bodies are bodies partaking of the soul. When the soul is lost, the body and person dies. Afterwards, rising by the Spirit, they are made spiritual bodies, so as to have by the Spirit a life which abides forever. Now, I'm looking forward to Monsignor you pulling this all together in a little bit. I'm just summarizing what Aaron is saying here. <laughs> we jump over to chapter 8. I told you, Monsignor, section oh, 1, yeah, yeah, okay. page 461. He begins with this quote, But now we receive a part from his Spirit towards the perfection and preparing of incorruption, practicing by little how to receive and bear God, which thing also the apostle have called an earnest, which is a portion of that honor which is promised to us by God. So if, again, 460, excuse me, 464, this issue of earnest. Now, what he's referring to is Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. It's his reflection on this. And we might be more accustomed to, or the modern translation doesn't use the word earnest. It uses the word guarantee. And the more I thought about it, I'd, I'd like earnest better than guarantee. I agree. Because guarantee, the way it's translated in the Revised Standard Version, is what leads to the once saved, always saved idea that once you've been baptized, once you have faith and you've been baptized and you receive the Spirit, you're guaranteed. He says in the Revised Standard Version, in him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To me, that word guarantee is a bit strong, but it's like the word earnest. He describes this earnest, therefore, so abiding in us, makest us already spiritual, and the mortal is swallowed up of immortality. For you, saith he, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwelleth in you. And this takes place not by our losing the flesh, but by our partaking of the spirit. So Monsignor before, you know, correct me, he was talking about what makes up a, a human person, body, soul, spirit. The body dies. The soul will be reunited when, this, when the body is revivified, what's the word? Yeah. By the spirit. Uh, and we have a spiritual body. So he's been talking about this whole translation. I shouldn't use the word translation. This whole, because uh, he uses it as a technical term. But now he starts to something else. Now he's talking about the fact that in this life, we experience a part of that already through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is That's so right. much of in Paul. We are already experiencing the not yet. We are already the spirit that we that doesn't guarantee that we're going to be there because we can 
quench the Holy Spirit, Paul says. We can frustrate the Holy Spirit. We can, we can drive the Holy Spirit out of us. Um, in fact, he, Jesus says in, in Revelation 2, if we're lukewarm after we've received, he, he would throw us up. He would spew us out if we are neither hot nor cold. Um, he goes on, and I'm going to push on, then turn over to you, Monster. It will render us like unto him and perfect us by the will of the Father, for it will make man to be after the image and likeness of God. He's telling the Gnostic the indwelling of the Spirit changes us, folks, and it helps perfect body, soul, and spirit for eternity. Uh, section 2 Basically, all of section two of chapter eight on page 465 deals with the two ways, the spiritual versus the carnal man. Those are the two ways. And then in section three, he says that the Old Testament, the law, foretold this using figures of animals. And here's where Irenaeus and Origen and others really get into the image, you know, the spiritual interpretation of the Old Testament. And I love it, you know. He, oh, it's, this is wonderful th stuff. This is really cool. Yeah. He, he, he says that in the Old Testament, when, when God was speaking <laughs> through Moses to the people about eating clean or unclean animals, well, how do, you, how do you know? Well, he says, okay, a clean animal is one that has double hoofs and chews the cud. And an unclean animal is one that either has... Only one of those two or neither. So an animal that doesn't have a double hoof but chews the cud is unclean. An animal that does have a double hoof but doesn't chew the cud is unclean. And an animal that doesn't have a double hoof and doesn't chew the cud is unclean. However, in my barn, I have an animal that has a double hoof and chews the cud. And he's clean. He's a clean. Unless I have to wipe off the udders and really get him clean so that I can get the milk, as I did a couple hours ago. And he makes the analogy of this, this uh, uh, is a, a symbol of us. And, and Father, you want to go ahead and explain this, or I can explain it. I just think it's fascinating. Double hoof means what? What what is do you remember? I mean, I could say it. The double hoof yeah, is a yeah. double hoof is a symbol of faith in the Father and the Son. Those are the double hooves. Faith in the Father and the Son. That's the double hoof. Not a single hoof, which is faith in only the Father or faith in only the Son. A double hoof is Father and the Son. And chewing the cud means musing on the Word of God. I think chewing the cud in the Latin is probably Lexio Divina, right? Yeah, that would be a good way to put it. You know, it's studying yeah. the word, praying over yeah. the word, chewing the cud. So you've got to have both. You've got to have faith in the Father and the Son, and you've got to chew on the Holy Spirit, chew on the, the scriptures, which is what he would be saying. And he's saying the clean are those that do both, those that have faith in the Father and the Son, and those that muse on the word of God are the spiritual, are the clean, are the faithful. But if you don't have both of those, or you aren't, you're unclean. Those that, for example, don't believe in the Father and the Son, and those that don't muse on the Word of God, he says, are the heathen. Those are the people that don't believe in the Father and the Son, and they don't study the Word. Those people that don't believe in the Father and the Son, but they do study the Word, he says, are the Jews. And he says, on the other hand, those that do believe in the Father and the Son, but aren't chewing on the Word correctly, are coming up with alternative explanations of the Word, are the heretics. And so therefore, he put all those three as the unclean category. Backing up, once again, it's the two ways. You're either clean or unclean. You're either spiritual or carnal. And he's mainly speaking to his Gnostics. I'm just going to end with one last quote, Monsignor, then I'll turn it over to you. He says at the end of that section, Justly, therefore, to all such 
Maybe I should read it from the book to make sure I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mistype, which I very easily could. At the bottom of page four, sixty-six is a summary. Four six six. Four six six. Summary. Justly, therefore, to all such who, through their unbelief and luxury, fail to attain the spirit of God, and by diverse marks which they bear cast out the word which giveth them life, and walk irrationally in their own lusts, the apostle Firth has given the name of carnal and animal, while the prophets have termed them beasts of burden and wild beasts. Custom again hath explained this by the words cattle and senseless. Lastly, the law has pronounced them unclean. So, Irenaeus is not cutting much slack for people who are outside of the faith, the apostolic faith, and aren't basing their life on Scripture. Right? The faith and the Word. The faith and the Word. From the very beginning, the faith, the apostolic tradition, and the Word of God. Monsignor, you wanted to pull Just, us back. Uh, yeah, and please keep me in the in the ballpark here, okay. uh, Marcus, on this. I I think I'd like to begin because it is confusing. I I struggled a lot with this section, um, uh, especially in chapters uh, six. Yeah, when we get into he's describing um, what the human person, the human, what the man is. Yeah. Now, we are we take it for granted that we have a body and a soul and a spirit, right? I mean, that's pretty much what everybody thinks. And whether we're with God or without God, we still have the three, body, soul, and spirit, the tripartite nature of a human person. Irenaeus doesn't believe that. It is not possible for us to be a fully, perfectly constituted human person. If you, I'm just using that word now, without the spirit of God, we're otherwise just an animal man. So, um, uh, all three are a part. All three of those are part of the perfect man, body, soul, and spirit, but. The soul is not uh, intrinsic. I mean, the the spirit is not intrinsic to um, the created the the person that's out there in the garden, if you will. Now, this is very confusing. Yeah. Here's here's what basically the here's where Irenaeus is coming from, and this is a challenge for us. All of us. Um, in the Latin tradition, in the Protestant tradition, this is a challenge for us because we've developed quite a bit from where he was. Um, He believes that Adam and Eve were not created perfect. They they did not bear, they they bore um, the image and the likeness of man, um, according to Genesis. Of God. Of God, I'm sorry, of God, but they did not bear the perfect likeness. They were born as children. And so the idea was that this was in God's plan. He gave birth to these children, and then they would grow, they would be educated so that, um, uh, that the the spirit, they would begin to have, possess a true spirit that makes it possible for them to be perfect in the image and the likeness of God. They still have the image, but they've got to get the likeness. So the whole thing is a dynamic view, if you will, of how salvation works. So I was going to jump in on that, to to jump in them as children. That's why when he, when we see in Scripture expressed the two ways, 
for them. Yeah. It's very simple. It's very simple. That's right. Yeah. Don't eat that tree. That's right. Because that, that's the two ways. Yeah. That's the two ways. Because, Don't eat that tree. Because if you will, um, looking at the three things, the, the spirit, the soul, the body, the soul can either go this way or this way. <laughs> and what happened in the Garden of Eden, you know, they show up for school and they get misled by the tempter, a yeah. bad teacher, if you will. And so their souls go to the body, to the flesh, if you will. And they forget about, they're in school to develop the spirit, to receive the spirit, if you will. And, and Jesus Christ came to help perfect that image again. Hmm. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial in this because um, the, we need the Holy Spirit for that image to be truly a likeness of God's son. And that's what, that's the anthropology basically that, um, that, that he goes on here about Adam and Eve were children. They were not created perfect. They were children and they chose wrong. And that's the story of the human race subsequent consequent i mean sorry yeah i mean i i don't know that we want to go into details of that ask i mean if you'd ask lots of questions about it did did Irenaeus therefore see that most of the people in the old testament were animal men yes um who were still in school they were still in school and the prophets the patriarchs and the prophets were there basically to educate them but they kept falling away because yep. they they kept listening to Satan. Um, and if you listen to Satan, your soul is turning toward the flesh rather yep. than toward the, that spirit, which we all, we don't have. We do not have a spirit in perfection. We have an anticipation of the spirit, if you will. Um, and there were some in the Old Testament that had a, a bigger yeah. portion of the spirit. Yeah. Elias, for example, that's why he yeah. was assumed. Yeah. Because of fullness. David has the spirit, you know, and he prays that it not be taken away from him. You know, there are lots of examples of yeah. that. So, and basically, I guess just to sum it up, um, when we're reading Irenaeus here, when he's talking about the spirit, the spirit is God's spirit. And do we participate in that or do we not participate in that? If we do and we grow, our soul takes us that way, um, then we become more perfect images. We become perfected, not more perfect, we become perfected. And otherwise we lose that spirit and and we, we go the other direction, if you will. Maybe a way to to summarize all this, Monsignor. Let me ask you. I'm going to ask you a question yeah. in terms of summary. How would you think what Irenaeus teaches in here would he use to analyze the world that we encounter today? When we look at the evening news, we look at what's happened in our culture, in our world, and not just in America, but around the world today. Describing yeah. people. He would. Oh, I would. Well, we'd be. We're animals. People um, whose souls have turned down for whatever reason. Yeah. They've, they've, they've been influenced by the bad teacher in ways they're totally unaware of. And so we, we lose we are losing or we've lost what should be um, a per the perfect man. The perfect man is not here because the spirit is not there. For the spirit is so 
minuscule, if you will. I don't know. Okay, but I don't know if we use that word, but you know. So now, rather than just going on Irenaeus's view, Monsignor, how would we describe though the reality of of the whole man in culture different now that Christ has come? What changed when we look at a, a person out there, human beings out there? compared to what Aaron is saying? Um, what Christ does is he has come to let us see what the perfect man is, what the, what the perfected man should be. When he, the incarnate Christ is the perfected man. And he gave us his spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we can be that. We can grow, but I just I every. Know, I was going to oh, add sorry. to that every person yeah. out there that we encounter, even that person when we're driving on the road and is tailgating us. We live in a time when more people tailgate than ever. But I'm not going to go there. My, yeah. my, my pet peeve. Oh, what's, yeah. what's with people oh, today? Know. Anyway, anyway, that person is redeemed, though. That person has been redeemed by Christ, right? I mean, that's one major difference. Everyone's been redeemed by Christ. He died for all. He died for all, yes. All been redeemed. Not necessarily saved, but redeemed. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thank you for that. That's very important, yeah. You all have been redeemed. Yeah. So they they have a ch- every single person has the opportunity by a level of grace they've been given to respond to that knowledge of God that's in the heart of every human being who was created in the image of God. Everyone that's out there. So, go ahead. So we, yeah, and what we have in St. Irenaeus is a dynamic view of, of salvation. It's, you know, the righteousness is not imputed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is, yes, of course it is, and at one level, but it takes also human cooperation. Um, uh, it takes both for a, a human being to be to be saved. You know, I, Marcus, could I just one sentence read please, one sentence, please? Um, that I thought summed this passage up really well. And this comes from a, a dear friend of mine, Father Tom Wynandy, um, who used to be the head of the doctrine section in the in the USCCB, wonderful soul, yep. Franciscan. And I put up on um, the on the internet, on our Deep in History website, a link to the article that he did on this that just blessed me so much. And one sentence here. While we as human beings are created in God's image and likeness, and so will come to show in his etern- share in his eternity and imperishability, Irenaeus insisted that we must grow into the image of God and mature in his likeness. So there's that dynamic view of salvation. And underlying all this is St. Irenaeus's sense that Adam and Eve were created as children and needed to be trained. And they just failed in school. Hmm. Well, not just failed, they catastrophically failed in school. And um, and so the Old Testament basically keeps school going, but we needed a tutor. Yeah. <laughs> Where someone that we could look at and see what the perfect image is. And, um, and once we could see it, we could begin to cooperate in the perfecting of that image in us. And besides, again, I don't want to add to it incorrectly what you said. Thank you, Monsignor. But our Lord Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, um, defeats the teacher. Yes, yes. Defeats the bad teacher. The bad teacher. The bad teacher. Yeah. Frees us from the slavery of the old curriculum, if you will. Yeah. But updates the curriculum 
so that as his pupils, we then learn to be like him, so that we know how to abide in him by grace. Right? That's right. And and, and it isn't guaranteed that we're going to pass. No. <laughs> to use no, that idea. And you know that you you've been pointing out very well the two ways that are laid before us, and the the operating entity here is the soul. It's the soul that has to decide which way we're going to go. Are we going to be conformed to the image of God's Son, that spiritual image, or are we going to kind of go into the muck? It, again, for those that are listening that, that think we're talking about works righteousness here, we're, we're, we're no. talking about uh, surrendering by grace to the Spirit, living by the Spirit's indwelling and changing us to become the people we, the, the people that Adam and Eve should have become. That's who we're, by grace, we do that. Mm -hmm. Grow in holiness, as it says in, in Hebrews, that we might have the holiness apart from which no one will see God. So let me ask you one final question. Whenever I go to funerals, the most common statement I hear from everyone, well, we know that person has gone to a better place. Irenaeus would not agree. He would not agree. He would not agree. And a good priest... We can't be sure. We can't be sure that the person we, is that's going right. to. That's the point. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, a good priest would would not be praising the merits of the departed. He would be praising the merits of Christ. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we have the hope. Yeah. Yeah. Faith. It has nothing, nothing to do with us. As he, as he said there, the faith... I forget where it said in there that the faith of the Father. That's that's the key. That's the key. You know, faith of the Father and the Son, and chewing on His Word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful. It's a both hand faith in <laughs> the Father and the Son, and chewing on His Word. There we are. All right, Monsignor. How about closing us with a word of prayer, if you would? All right, and we, we our hearts are full of thanksgiving for the new calf that was born into your family. Oh, thank you. So, thank you. <laughs> in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we pray for the gift of your spirit to help to perfect the image of God that is in us. And we pray that we will be faithful to that spirit and that we will grow to be more like your son. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank you for joining us, folks. We'd love to have your questions, comments, critiques. I'll, I'll try to be a little better. Monsignor, both of us be a little better at, at checking our website to make sure we, we catch any emails. If we did, we'll, we'll go back and if we find any, yeah. we'll try and bring them up next week. But until then, God bless you. We'll see you all next week. Thank you, Monsignor. God bless. Take care. Bye. Thank you.